Hi, and welcome to episode 17 of Subspace Communique's Life After Trek. I'm your host, Chris, or Captain Pike. With me, as always, is Charity. A.K.A. Crewman Becky. Hi, hi. Tonight's episode is pretty pretty exciting. Um, not that we haven't enjoyed bringing you guys the 16 episodes before this, but we're really excited to tell you that Armin Shimmerman's on the podcast tonight. Yay! Yeah, how cool is that? Uh, we've loved talking to all the other former cast and crew of Star Trek, but Armin Shimmerman playing Quark is one of our favorite characters. Um, so we're really excited to bring this to you guys. And Armin was super nice and gracious and a very interesting guy, a real class act. So you guys are really going to dig this episode. Uh, so here it comes. Stay tuned. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Tonight's special guest is known for a myriad of roles throughout his career. Uh, some of our favorites include Andrew Ryan, Stan the Caddy, The Terror, uh, Principal Snyder, and of course the proprietor of Quark's Bar on Deep Space Nine. We'd like to give a very warm Life After Truck welcome to Armin Shimmerman. Hey Armin, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's awesome we get to talk to you. Um, I think what we want to start out here with is, is your, early, your early acting uh, career. Uh, one of your earliest film credits is Woody Allen's Stardust Memories. Now, were you working in theater before that, or, or, or better yet, when and where did you get your start in acting? Well, I was a very lucky guy. Um, I uh, was in college at UCLA, and um, I had the opportunity to audition for one of the country's premier Shakespeare festivals in San Diego, the Globe Theater. And um, I got my apprenticeship there. Uh, I spent a summer in 1972, Worked with some amazing actors, uh, including uh, Chris Reeve and um, and uh, um, oh Christ, I just forgotten <laughs> Tony's last <laughs> name. Um, uh, Anthony uh, Zerby, Tony uh, Tony Zerby, and uh, uh, wonderful people, wonderful people. Anyway, they convinced me to move to New York, and uh, so in 1973, I moved to New York and. Uh, almost immediately uh, was hired to do what we call regional theater. I worked in, in Springfield, Massachusetts, and in Vermont uh, doing various Shakespearean uh, productions. And then I came back to New York and had an audition for the premier New York Shakespeare Festival for the impresario Joe Papp. And he hired me uh, almost immediately to do his next production, which was um, a, a very successful production of Three Penny Opera with Raul Julia. Mm. And we ran it at, on Broadway for a year and a half, and uh, and from then I went on to three other Broadway productions. I did um, St. Joan with Lynn Redgrave, and uh, I did um, Broadway with Terry Garr, and my last production was uh, Richard Rogers' last musical. It was uh, called I Remember Mama, and my little footnote in musical comedy history is that Mr. Rogers uh, wrote his last song for me. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Neat. That's really cool. And then I went on to do uh, a lot of other regional theater, major regional theaters around the country, the Guthrie Theater, um, the uh, Mark Table Forum, uh, Seattle, um, lots of different cities, lots of different theaters. And then while I was in New York, I auditioned for uh, Stardust Memories. And, and, and uh, <laughs> it was a very strange audition. I said, uh, I think, three words. Mr. Allen did all the talking. 
and I think all I said was hello and thank you. Um, <laughs> he did the rest of the talking, and then lo and behold, I got a phone call from my agent saying I was in the film. That's great. That's, yeah, that, awesome. that's actually what I was going to ask if it was shot in New York, because I guess most of his or almost all of his films are shot uh, in New York. Yeah, this one was shot in the Bronx. Uh, it was in not the best area of the Bronx, and I remember uh, I worked for about two weeks on it, or you can't really see me in the picture, uh, but I actually worked for two weeks. And um, we were in a holding area where we reported every morning, and then, of course, which is where they were shooting. And then for lunch, they would, they would load us onto a bus and drive us a block. It was only one city <laughs> block. They would drive us a block to where we ate. And I guess the neighborhood was a little rough, and so they didn't want any of us uh, to get uh, waylaid uh, between the cafeteria and the, and the shooting soundstage. That's crazy. At least they were thinking of you, yeah, right? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny, uh, for the folks out there listening, also uh, another Trek alumni that was in uh, Stardust Memories was uh, Brent, Sp- Brent Spiner uh, from Star Trek The Next Generation. We saw that uh, on IMDb, although I don't remember seeing Brent in Stardust Memories, I'm sure. And you can't really see me either, but I'm sure Brent, uh, you know what, this is the first time hearing of it, I'm sure Brent worked probably as long as I did. And we're just not in the movie anywhere. But uh, we got paid for two weeks of work. At least I got paid for two weeks of work and, and met some wonderful character actors from the theater who were all working the sort of the same small roles that, that I was in the movie. The thing, the thing about Stardust Memories is he was looking for faces. He was looking for interesting, uh, bizarre, uh, fascinating faces. That's what he told me while I was sitting there. And, uh, and he got them. If you look at Stardust Memories, uh, it's, a, it's a who's who of, of uh, wonderful character actors. That's yeah, neat. definitely. I was going to ask you what you did before film and TV, but it sounds like we we got it. Um, not not a lot. I mean, you went straight from college into. I went. Stage. In fact, I I didn't even uh, go to my graduation, my college graduation, because I was already performing at the at the Globe, um, and uh, that was a phenomenal phenomenal experience. Um, oh, wow. Worked with the best actors, some of the best actors in uh, Shakespeare in the United States. Yeah, and you know, looking back at your early career in Hollywood, you made uh, guest appearances on uh, a lot of the a lot of our favorite TV shows from the from the eighties. Uh, a lot of those, including Hill Street Blues, Cagney and Lacey, Remington Steel, Facts of Life, uh, Sledgehammer, which is <laughs> I don't know if folks out there remember Sledgehammer, but it, honestly, it's one of my favorite shows. Very funny. From, it's a great, uh, it's a great TV show. Yeah, yeah, I love watching. Yeah, it was one of our favorite from from that time period. Now I know that the climate in Hollywood's changed a lot. Uh, since the 80s, because there were a lot of detective dramas, a lot of uh, sitcoms. And now there, there's more, especially with the networks, there's a lot uh, a lot more reality uh, television. Now, what was it like working during that time period as a, as a character actor? Um, well, if I can answer that question, or at least pose the question a little differently. Sure, um, absolutely. Normally, for most of your guests, I'm sure that's a valid question. But for me, it's a, it's a slightly different question, and so I, I will give you a credit perhaps most people don't know. Um, at the time that you're talking about, I served on the board of the Screen Actors Guild. Oh, no kidding. No, we didn't and know that. And so it, it's more than just how it affected me personally. I was very much responsible and concerned about how it affected the entire community. Oh, wow. And so as a national board member uh, for SAG, uh, we were very concerned, and we did our, uh, what we could to... to um, not stop it because we had no right to stop it, but we 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 tried to set protections for actors. And one of the things we did was uh, during the time I was there, we got some protections for not necessarily the series regulars, but for the guest stars, so as far as salary and and pension health contributions. 
to sort of beef up for the fact that there was going to be less there was going to be less work out there because everything else uh, before uh, reality shows was all scripted, and if it's scripted, uh, you're using actors. And um, if uh, if you're doing reality TV, <laughs> you're still using actors, but they don't get paid the same way. <laughs> so it was uh, it, it was a change, but. Uh, but we tried to protect everybody as best we could. And, and reality TV, uh, although it's still with us, it, it didn't explode the way we feared. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it did take over TV. I think, I think a lot of people still want to see a scripted show, and with the scripted show, you're going to be using good actors. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as for me personally, I was very fortunate. Uh, about the time that this was happening, I was already involved in various shows as a recurring character and in Star Trek as a series regular. And so... Um, uh, I didn't necessarily have to go out and look for work as much as my fellow actors were. And at that time, you were still doing theater too, I would guess. Uh, not as much as I liked. Uh, I sort of, I was sort of seduced by the dark side of the force, and um, <laughs> I uh, I did local theater, but um, I I sort of gave up my uh, the major theaters in the country sort of aspirations to do that, and that's something I've sort of gone back to now. But um, um, I, I wish, in hindsight, it is uh, that I had done more regional theater um, during the time that I was working on TV um, steadily. Do you have any upcoming uh, theater projects? I don't. I just finished two plays here in Los Angeles, and uh, which was a wonderful new play called Broadsword, um, done at the Black Dahlia Theater. And then I also did, before that, uh, Juno and the Peacock which is an Irish classic, and I was uh, happy to do that with my wife, Kitty Swink, who played Juno. Very cool. Um, we noticed that you have a, a listing in IMDb for Dropping Evil, and there's not a lot out there on that project. Are they through filming it, or is there anything you can no, it was, it was a it's a small, very low-budget picture um, that uh, I don't know much about. Um, I, I did it, was happy to do it, uh, worked with a young filmmaker in Iowa, um, I, I don't know whether it'll ever see the light of day, although I got to, uh, play a, a really sort of horrible person. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it was fun to do. I was only there for a couple of days shooting. Um, and, uh, I was, I was grateful and happy to help this very young, he, he had to be in his twenties, this very young filmmaker uh, with a project that he had uh, raised the funds for and cast and was shooting and scripted. Um, the script wasn't phenomenally written. That's why I wanted to do it. Uh, there wasn't any money involved, but, but, but the words were so delicious that uh, when they asked me if I wanted to do it, I said, yeah, to say these words, it would be a delight. <laughs> How neat. And that actually kind of brings us to another one that we wanted to talk about. Um, something that we covered on our website was a movie called The Sublime and Beautiful um, mm-hmm. that uh, that was looking for funding through Kickstarter. And actually, a pretty interesting way you could uh, you could uh, donate a certain amount, and Armin would give you a uh, customized uh, greeting <laughs> as Quark. Uh, but has has filming begun yet? No, no, we haven't. I will go off to uh, Kansas. That's uh, that's in January. And I will go off to Kansas in, in January to shoot that for Blake. And, and that uh, relationship was formed while doing Broadsword, the theater play I was mm. just telling you about. Um, Blake was one of the actors in the show, and he's written this incredible script. And um, incredible actor, and, and, a, and I loved having conversations with him. And, 
while we were in performance, he, he said, can I give you the script to read? And I said, sure. And I read it and liked it, and he, he wondered if I could play one of the parts, and I said I'd be delighted, delighted to do that. And uh, I'm looking forward to doing that in January. Yeah, it actually sounds like a pretty heavy uh, subject matter uh, that's going to be explored. It, it, it is. It's it's a little tough going. I kept saying, where's the comic relief? Um, <laughs> it, it is... Uh, you know, I don't know whether I should tell you or not, because uh, I don't know whether Blake wants it to get out. I know he wants the name of the film to get out, but whether or not he wants it to tell the story, that might be something else. Gotcha. Yeah, I think uh, I think he had something on the Kickstarter page, just kind of a general premise about dealing with grief and how how, yeah. how families deal with that. And sounds like an extremely interesting uh, uh, project. It, it is. It, it is a, it's a tragic story, and uh, and the tragedy is caused by the character that I will play, and I think that's all I'm going to tell you. <laughs> You just have to wait for that one then. No, that's great. Yeah. Um, yeah, we were we were actually pretty interested in, in it as well, and we're glad to be able to you know, spread the word and get the funding so you guys could could shoot that. Please, I, I, I'm telling you, it's a, it'll be a great shoot because uh, Blake's a great person, and and again, the writing is really really touching, and uh, if all of us can do it justice, it'll be a phenomenal film. You know, there's also another uh, series that Armin's been in. Of course, we're going to talk about his time on Deep Space Nine and, and early works in The Next Generation. Uh, but another show that uh, has almost as big, if not as big, of a cult following was Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, where right. Armin played uh, uh, Principal Snyder. Uh, now, how did you get that role? Was that something that somebody approached you for? Or did you still have to uh, audition for it? It's it's um, probably going on, oh, I don't know, uh, 15 years? I don't know how to answer that question. <laughs> um, I don't know how I got Principal Snyder. I didn't audition for Principal Snyder. I auditioned for his predecessor. I auditioned for Principal Flutie. Mm. And um, I didn't get it. Uh, my good friend Kenny Leonard, uh, Kenny Leonard got it. And um, and I watched it because Kenny was on it. And as I watched it, I just thought, oh, the writing is really terrific. Joss Whedon really knows something about writing. He's really masterful. And then one day I got a phone call from um, my agent saying that uh, they wanted me to play Principal Snyder. And uh, I said, great, I've been watching the show. Um, and I, I thought it was only going to be for a little while. And in fact, I was under the impression that because they killed Kenny off, um, Flutie, that um, uh, that they will kill, kill my principal off, and and Joss once once told me that that was their intention, that they thought that they would have revolving principals, um, but they somehow forgot to kill me off, <laughs> and uh, and um, so I stayed for um, for three years, and I must say, one of the um, blessings of my life is that the line producers for both shows liked each other and bent over backwards to allow me to work as many Buffies as I could. Um, there were probably one or two that I was originally in the script and just couldn't do it because of Star Trek. But but uh, the line producers really worked in tandem in order to allow me to have days off from Star Trek so that I could go and work uh, for Buffy. That's really cool. It was very cool. How much of an over- overlap was there between the years you were doing uh, DS? It was, and Buffy? it was exactly the same time. Oh, no kidding! I, my three years on Buffy were my last three years on Star Trek. Oh wow! Oh. Yeah. And in fact, uh, <laughs> it, it was a bad uh, week when uh, when Star Trek came to an end because that's also the week that Buffy came to an end. Oh wow! No kidding. For me, anyway. Buffy yeah. went on. I I, I was good off. But um, it was a joy, and then and both parts sort of informed the other for me and were energizing 
um, in my mind, they were diametrically opposed. Uh, Quark was a character who loved life, and Snyder was a character who who hated life. And and so, um, if I got too carried away with Quark, I would be brought down to earth with Snyder, and then and vice versa. If Snyder would uh, would make me want to go back to Quark. And where the other actors on the show uh, were sort of locked into their roles on Star Trek, I had this outlet uh, that allowed me to uh, to come back to Star Trek with new joy and new insight. Yeah, it sounds like it could be a, a good experience, although exhausting if you were working that much. It was. And, and again, uh, I was very blessed because not only were the line producers bending over backwards to allow me to um, to do both shows, but I was doing other shows as well. And my contract that I'd signed at the very beginning of Star Trek uh, only allowed me to do uh, one or two other shows a season outside mm. of Star Trek. So the mere fact that I was recurring on on Buffy, and for a while also recurring on The Practice and Ally McBeal, um, uh, was just great. They they sort of turned a blind eye to my contract and allowed me to do as much as I wanted to yeah, no within reason. Wow, that's great. Yeah, we're um, fans of your film work and TV work and everything, and. Only recently did I find out that you were the uh, voice for one of my favorite video game characters, Andrew Ryan. Bioshock. Yeah. <laughs> well, Bioshock, uh, again, phenomenal writing. Um, again, I don't know how I got the part. All I know is I showed up at the soundstage and they gave me some material to read because that's what you do with games. You, you stand in a booth pretty much by yourself. Mm. And um, I, I had the the director with me, but he was on the phone, and uh, I don't know where he was. I, I'm assuming he was in New York. He could have been in Massachusetts. He, he could have been next door. I don't know where he was, but but he gave me uh, direction, and the lines were, again, delicious. They were, I mean, if you're fans of Bioshock, you know how delicious those lines are. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and I, was, uh, I was just caught up in it and uh, was ecstatic to do the part. Um, and uh, really, uh, I've been in some major classical plays. I've done some wonderful TV, but the lines in Bioshock is some of the finest material I ever did. Well, it's so emotional, too. You know, it's it's really, really neat to listen to. Well, it, it was inspiring. I, I, as, a, as a young man, I had read a lot of Ayn Rand, and uh, as I grew up, I sort of fell away from that philosophy. But uh, it was nice to revisit it uh, again a couple of years ago. That's funny because I was actually going to ask uh, ask you if you were a fan of Ayn Rand because we saw you in Atlas Shrugged. Right. It was a, there seemed to be a, re- a recurring theme there. Um, I was in Atlas Shrugged, and again, uh, it was a chance to do some Ayn Rand and and uh, lovely time, lovely set. Um, I'm drawing a blank on the actor I worked with who played uh, Hank Reardon. But he was a delight to work with. The director was terrific. And uh, although I was playing one of uh, uh, so-called enemies, uh, I was uh, delighted to be part of the project. That's great. Um, Have you done any work for Bioshock 3 Infinite? I believe Bioshock 3, I'm not, they don't check with me. Um, I I was surprised, actually, I got into Bioshock 2 because, after all, without giving anything away, I had the Ryan (laughs) guys at the end of Bioshock 1. So it, it was lovely to be included in Bioshock 2. Um, but I believe Bioshock 3 uh, takes place in a different time altogether. It, it does, yeah. it does. But I was very curious to find out if they were going to put Andrew <laughs> Ryan in there somehow. Yeah. So. Well, I know they're very fond of Andrew Ryan. I'm certainly very fond of him. 
Uh, I hope in the future by shocks, if I'm not in three, and I don't think I will be, uh, that I'll make some of the others. Yeah. Well, and you've done a, a ton of other video games, Mass Effect, Ratchet and Clank, um, just to name a couple. Um, do you do you like voice acting? I do. I do because uh, uh, you know when you're when you're who I am when you're when you're five foot six and of a certain age and a certain look and uh, um, you know the the media sort of pigeonholes you into certain roles. I've been mm-hmm. very fortunate to be pigeonholed into some very nice roles. But there are <laughs> roles like Andrew Ryan I would never play on screen. Not yeah. ever. Yeah. Um, and uh, and the idea that you can do them in games, you can you can it's still acting, um, and you get to do them, and it has nothing to do with what you look like. And in Andrew Ryan's case, sometimes not even what you sound like, because I think they adjust my voice a little. Yeah, I would have never uh, figured out that was you. Yeah. Um, so I love doing games because it offers just new arenas where I can perform that I, I w- I'm not allowed to perform in because of who I am and the way I look. Well, yeah, it it kind of gives uh, actors a new uh, outlet uh, since the gaming industry is seems to be picking up steam. Um, not that it hadn't, but it seems to be gaining as much uh, like monetary value as feature films uh, nowadays. Well, some games like Bioshock, for instance, uh, make as much as a, as a major tentpole picture do. And uh, the, the problem for game uh, makers is that not all games do that. Of course, not all films do that either. Um, so you have to go through a number of games if you're a game manufacturer to get to that mega hit. And uh, Electronic Arts, uh, you know, had a had a hit there. So how does that work uh, for voice acting in video games? Do the same rules apply for the Screen Actors Guild? Or? Oh God! Well, yes, yes and no. <laughs> It's a very touchy com- uh, question, actually. It's a very touchy question. Uh, one that's uh, it's being debated tonight. In fact, after our interview, I'll probably go join that debate. Wow. Um, uh, the, the Screen Actors Guild used to have a contract for that work. And at this moment in time, the Screen Actors Guild does not have a contract for that work. Hmm. Now, it doesn't mean that it's not a union work. It falls under the other union's jurisdiction at this time, which is AFTRA. And uh, without getting too political, I hope that a SAG sees the error of its ways and reconstitutes that contract as soon as possible. Mm. I think uh, I think we've covered what we wanted to cover about your early work and your your current. Um, of course, we want to move into into Star Trek. Uh, that's what uh, what the fans really kind of kind of clamor for they love actually we get a lot of feedback from folks saying that you know a lot of the questions have been asked before for track we want to know about um, you know what the 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 star trek stars are doing now and kind of you know what we covered before uh what uh, what they had done before they they entered track now were you a star trek fan before you got involved in track yes a huge fan and because of that fandom um it's it is why i'm was in Star Trek. I mean, everybody's lives have little moments, nexus, moments of nexus, where you do something where you could have gone either way, and uh, because you went one way, your life changed, and you went in that direction for the rest of your life. This is certainly true of my participation in Star Trek. Um, I was recurring on a show called Beauty and the Beast when TNG was getting started. Um, I was a huge Star Trek fan. I had loved the original show. I used to rush home to see it, and uh, 
and uh, like everybody else, you know, loved the, the original cast. But I was doing Beauty and the Beast, and uh, I got a phone call from my agent saying, you have an audition for this new show, Next Generation. Um, I went to audition for um, a talking prop on um, Next Generation, mm. and uh, a gift card box was the character. And, uh, and, and then I finished the audition. I came home. The next day, I got my usual phone call from Beauty and the Beast telling me which day I needed to be at Beauty and the Beast for work there. And at this point, I had done quite a few episodes as a very recurring character on Beauty and the Beast. Later in that day, that second day, um, I got a phone call from uh, the agent saying that I had booked the, uh, the gift box part. But unfortunately, they wanted to use me the same day as my Beauty and the Beast uh, episode. Mm. So, um, uh, my agent gave me what they considered the very best advice, which was I had to say no to stuff, uh, because after all, Beauty and the Beast was my bread and butter, and, and uh, I didn't want to upset the people who had been so nice to me. But I was a huge Star Trek fan, and uh, I said, I need a little time to think about this. So I, I thought about it, I called them back and said, you know what? I really want to do this Star Trek thing. I really want to be part of this Star Trek existence because I'm a huge Star Trek fan. And because I did the, the gift box part, uh, within a week or two, uh, they were looking for short character actors to play Ferengi. And because I had just finished working for them and because they didn't care whether uh, they used the same actors over again, not which most, most shows, almost all shows, do care, um, I was in their mind. And I then went, I had an audition again, but uh, then became uh, one of the first Ferengi in uh, Last Outpost. And of course, all of that led to Quark. Uh, yeah, of course, definitely. And so looking at the, the Ferengi in Last Outpost, of course, there, you know, the Ferengi species evolved over the time of Star Trek The Next Generation and Star Trek Deep Space Nine. So what was your inspiration for playing that first Ferengi role? Well, the first Ferengi role... Uh, which is character named Letek, uh, was a complete disaster. Uh, complete disaster. <laughs> I mean, they they showed me what they thought the Ferengi should be. They, they were supposed to out-Klingon on the Klingons. Mm. Uh, they weren't supposed to be comic. They were supposed to be horrendous, threatening species. And so my performance and the performance of my two cohorts, um, Jake and Tracy, uh, were very comedic, and we sabotaged whatever the writers had in mind for that original. <laughs> so it was always my agenda, and I've said this many times, when I got cast as Clark, um, it was always my agenda to rescue the, that original performance. But to answer your question directly, which is what was the inspiration, if you look at Lettech, you will see that there, I have a slight limp, and one of my shoulders is a little higher. And I am a huge uh, Shakespeare buff, and so I based it on Richard III. Oh, no kidding. Wow. Wow, that's uh, that's really interesting. So now it's funny you you, you mentioned that uh, that you sabotaged the, the writers and played it as a comedic role because I was going to ask um, that, uh, you know, we love Quark, of course, and Quark kind of transformed over the years into into something you might say as a, as a very lovable character. 
Um, now, was that a, a natural genesis or was that a planned uh, transition? Um, that's, I can answer half the question. The other half you would have to ask the writing staff. Okay. <laughs> um, they cast me. I am lovable. <laughs> I am charming. Of course. Uh, so, um, so writers write for the actors that they have. If they had cast um, Malkovich uh, for that part, it would have gone a different way. Sure. That you write for who you have. So, uh, did I plan him to be more charming? Um, probably not. But I just, being who I am, it just went naturally in that direction. Um, I know I wanted Quark to be more three-dimensional, and that was purposeful. And I had many conversations with the writing staff about that. That I wanted him to be, a, I wanted him to be a three-dimensional character. When I did that first episode of Last Outpost on TNG, uh, Brent Spiner and I had known each other for years before we, either one of us ever did Star Trek. And while I was on the set of Last Outpost, I remember him saying something to me, which became a mantra for all the time that I worked as Quark. He said, Armin, I asked him the very question you had asked me, but it was at the beginning of his arc. I said, so what do you want to do with this character, Brent? And he said to me, I want to take the character with the least amount of potential and make him the character with the most amount of potential, mm. which, of course, he achieved extremely well. And so that was my agenda as well. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, it, it's funny with Deep Space Nine. It's probably, you know, a lot of Trek fans say it's the darker of the series. Um, but I would say that it almost has both darkness and light. There were a lot of really great episodes that were whimsical, I would say, like Little Green Men, The Fabulous Ferengi, just to name a few. And then you have other episodes that are much darker, like the Siege siege of uh, AR-558, uh, Far Beyond the Stars, The Visitor, um, and in fact, actually far beyond the stars, you guys obviously weren't in makeup, completely different story. How was that, uh, for the, for the cast? Was it a needed break? Was it, uh, I'm sure it was a great experience for you. It is. It was a great ex- experience. It is without doubt my favorite of the episodes that we did. Uh, not because I was out of makeup. I just thought the concept, the, being an actor, all actors have a little secret that they don't tell anybody. And I'm going to tell you now. We all know that we all serve the writers, mm. that the writers are the true heroes of, of the TV shows, and they get very little attention. Um, so one of the things that Far Beyond the Stars does is glorify the writer, that behind these characters are people writing them, deciding all these, these questions that you're asking, making those, those decisions, having story meetings about the very things we're talking about. And, and what happens is the actors are given a, a pretty much finished script, and then we embody them, and, and that's an art as well. But the original artist, the primary artist, is the writer. So um, I very much enjoyed doing it. Now, how is it for, the, the, for us, the actors? Um, because at that point, I believe that's our sixth season, and uh, most of the crew uh, had been working with me for a very long time, and, and although we've been to parties together, and although we, they saw me in and out of makeup, um, they were very um, uneasy uh, during that week working with me out of makeup. Mm. Uh, and I had one particular person, Pat, our prop guy, 
said, uh, I don't know how to deal with you, Rademacher. <laughs> and in, in, all, in all, all seriousness, he, he sort of looked at me and said, I, I, I just, it, it rattles me, he said, not to see you um, in your, you know, your full regalia. So there was that. Um, and, and for me, you know, uh, it was in a sense relief. Um, I'm, I'm not loath to tell people how much I dislike the makeup process. And the idea of actually spending a whole week out of makeup um, was um, a gift. And it's a fascinating story, too. I mean, the... the... It's, a, it's an enormously... It, it, is, it is perhaps... Uh, I've done a lot of science fiction. I've read a lot of science fiction. Far Beyond the Stars. The concept was by a good friend of mine, Mark Sigrid. Um, Far Beyond the Stars is brilliant science fiction. Absolutely. Brilliant. Absolutely. And I would say that Deep Space Nine... Uh, of course, you know, we're Star Trek fans, so all of it's near and dear to our, to our hearts. But Deep Space Nine has some of the most remarkable episodes of television in as a whole, I would say. Far Beyond the Stars, uh, The Visitor, to name one, um, you know, In the Pale Moonlight. So many, so many episodes that actually go farther than being really great Star Trek episodes and become great television and art. art. Um, I would yeah. say so. I couldn't agree more, and, and we owe that to both Michael Pillar and Ira Bear, mm. um, especially to Ira Bear, uh, who was Michael's um, um, successor. And it was always Ira's agenda, at least what I heard, was he wanted to push the envelope. He wanted to, he wanted, as you say, not just to do wonderful Star Trek. He wanted to do wonderful television. Yeah, and they achieved that by far, by far. I think so. I think so. Yeah, and we actually uh, we found out today. I haven't haven't read it yet, but I'm. It's on my list. Something that I didn't know about. But you co-wrote a book uh, with David George called "The Thirty Fourth Rule" uh, about Quark. And of course, everybody out there, I don't know if you know, the Thirty Fourth Rule of Acquisition is war is good for business. Now, right. how did that how did that project come about for you? Um. Well. Uh, David and I, and Eric Stilwell, uh, had decided we'd get together, team up, and and write a uh, a, nep- a plot episode that we wanted to sell to Star Trek. And we had our meeting with Ira, and uh, and they told us that they weren't going to uh, use the idea for an episode. They didn't they didn't see the worth of it. We were a little disappointed when we left the writers' building. Sure. Um, but but at that point in time, I had already written a novel that has nothing to do with Star Trek. Uh, I've, I'm the author of a series of books called The Merchant Prince, and my Merchant Prince, uh, the first one, had already been published and uh, had already come out. And so I said to Eric and David, you know, if we don't sell it as a TV episode, maybe we should novelize it. Maybe we should, you know like Simon Schuster, and, and see if we can give it to them for one of their book series. And um, uh, Eric uh, felt that that was more work than he wanted to do, or, and I'm sure he had other reasons as well. But uh, David thought uh, it was worth doing, and so uh, we had already sussed out the um, outline. So we sent the outline on to, to Simon and Schuster, to their Star Trek division, and uh, they were very kind about uh, accepting it. And so uh, that's how the book came about. And folks out there, if you haven't read it, it's available in paperback. But there's also the audio book that's available that Armin actually narrates. So be sure and check that out. I know it's actually going on our list of of audible downloads. So we'll be checking that out really soon. Okay. But I should also, you know, again, uh, I had 
I was already an author, and uh, since since Thirty uh, Fourth Rule, I have published two other uh, Merchant Prince books as well. So, what are the Merchant uh, Prince books about? Um, because my passion is for Elizabethan times and for Shakespeare, um, I wanted to combine my two passions, which was that and and science fiction, together. So, um, uh, Merchant Prince is about a Elizabethan, a uh, a necromancer named John Dee, who was very instrumental in Elizabeth's reign, uh, who, through a series of misadventures, finds himself in the uh, 22nd century. Oh, wow. And, and, uh, uh, and is desperately trying to get back to his time. Um, how he does that and whether he does that is for the reader to find out. And, but he uses his point of view, his, his, uh, his Elizabethan point of view, his, to sort of solve ideas or to, or to approach things that the 22nd century person um, wouldn't know how to handle. And, and that's basically what it's about. There are, the first book is about setting up the world. The second work, book is primarily about how he deals with um, religion in the 22nd century. And the third book uh, is, um, deals with a problem that when I wrote the book, which is, has to be about 15 years ago, 12 years ago, um, I felt would be solved by now, and that is uh, the question of enemy combatants. Mm. Um, Mr. D, my main character, becomes a prisoner of the state and uh, um, has to deal with being locked up with no possibility of a trial. Wow. See, that's the great thing about science fiction. I love the fact that, that science fiction, Star Trek, um, and other science fiction series and books, it, it's a mirror for the current times. You look at episodes of Deep Space Nine, especially during the Dominion War, uh, yeah. And it's it's a mirror for right now. And when we started, when we started, I believe again, you have to ask Michael Pillar this. I, well, you can't ask him, but um, um, Michael Pillar or maybe Rick would be able to tell you. Uh, Mike obviously can't. Um, is that I, I believe Deep Space Nine was was based on the Bosnia uh, War, mm. um, and so we were sort of reflecting our times. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So you're saying that you're a Star Trek fan. Um, before uh, doing TNG and DS9. Now, have you seen the new J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie? Sure, absolutely. What did you think of it? I thought it was a great ride. It's a great ride. Because I'm huge fans of the original show, uh, I thought the younger actors did a phenomenal job of, uh, of doing them and, uh, and, and the teamwork. Uh, uh, I love the humor. I love the adventure. Um, it, it was a terrific ride. But it, it'll now be a question of whether, okay, like my first book is about setting up the world, this first movie is about setting up their world, and now what do you do with that world? And that's what I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with the next picture. Absolutely, and so are we. Definitely, definitely. And that wasn't really a loaded question because we're huge fans of the the new new movie as well. Uh, we actually had a, a question from one of our readers. Uh, he was asking uh, if you were to be in Star Trek uh, Two or Star Trek Twelve, however you want to call it i'm not sure what the name is just yet i think you have to call it two, two. I, I think by every criteria you have to call it two gotcha okay so we'll call it star trek two if you if you had a role in star trek two what type of role would you like to play if not playing a ferengi again is there something else you would like to play um no i just want to play a ferengi uh, <laughs> I, 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 I you know I, I love star trek i'm a huge fan but uh but only the ferengi fascinate me so um uh there i certainly don't want to play a human that's for sure um, um 
and uh, I don't know. I suppose if they, if they offered me something, I'd be glad to do it. Sure. But, but I hope that if they do offer me something, uh, it would be a Frankie. Although, you know, the the way the world is set up, uh, at least in 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 Rick Berman's uh, franchises, uh, they would not have uh, come across the Ferengi at that at that uh, time. Anything's possible, though. It's an alternate anything alternate universe. So yeah, <laughs> and I, and I if I do get to do it, I would love to have a scene with Chris Pine, who who is a friend of mine, and uh, um, we well one of the things I haven't mentioned is that I I run a theater group or help run a theater group. I'm on the board of directors of a theater group, of which Chris Pine is also a member. So we really appreciate you taking the time to to sit down with us and talk about your current projects, talk about Star Trek. And we have a question that we always end the episode with and maybe something that you've heard before at conventions. But since you were a Star Trek fan uh, before, uh, do you have a favorite episode? doesn't have to be Deep Space Nine, but just Star Trek as a whole. Do you have a favorite episode? Yeah, I do. And, and it's because science fiction is so good about um, mirroring or being a metaphor for social events. And unfortunately, I don't know the title of the episode. Perhaps you can help me. It's the it's from the original series, um, and that is where the species has black on one side of the face and white on the other side of the face. And uh, that was my all-time favorite of the original episodes. But I must say, that said, and I know it's it's a little selfish of me to say this, but my favorite is far beyond the stars. Yeah. Uh, I don't think... Uh, I'll match that episode against anything that anyone's ever done. So we'll put that down as uh, let that be your last battlefield and far beyond the stars. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and both excellent episodes. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to us. It's been an absolute ple- pleasure, and we uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you. It was my pleasure to talk to both of you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye-bye. So that was episode 17 of Subspace Communiques Life After Trek, and we really hope that you guys enjoyed that episode as much as we did bringing it to you. Like we said in the intro, Armin is such a class act, and it was so cool to talk to him about not only Star Trek, but also his time in, in acting, his origins in acting, you know, being uh, in, in college and going directly into uh, Shakespeare. Uh, but we had just a, a blast talking to Armin. So if you haven't heard our podcast before, if this is your first time, we do have 16 other episodes that you can check out at lifeaftertrek.com. You can get it from iTunes. You can get it off the website. Uh, and if you do get it off of iTunes, we'd really appreciate a five-star review. Now, we'll take other reviews. <laughs> but but the, we won't be as happy. We won't be as happy in the five-star get you special Star Trek cred. <laughs> Whatever that's good for. Quadra Triticale on K7. I don't know what it's good for. But wow, impressive. Yeah, but we would really dig it. So please do that. We'd like to give a shout out to some of the other podcasts that we really dig. Uh, we'd like to say hi to everybody at Geek Fights, geekfights.net. Be sure and check them out. We would also like to say hi to, to the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. Scott and Miles put on a fantastic show every single week, and it covers everything in the science fiction universe. So be sure and check those guys out too. So if you haven't been to our website before, it's subspacecommunicate.com. You can check us out there, but you can also follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash subspacecoms. You can also like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash subspacecoms. We even have a page on Google+. 
Ooh, fancy. I didn't know that. Yeah, you can be one of the first 10 people <laughs> to like us on Google+. Talk Plus. about cred. Yeah, so be sure and do that. I don't know the URL, but <laughs> if you do <laughs> a search you guys next time. on Google+, Plus, you'll be able to find us. Anyway, but again, thank you to Armin, uh, Class Act. We had a blast talking to him. Hopefully, we can have some more podcasts for you guys really soon. We really dig doing this. And I know that from the, the reaction we're getting from the fans, you guys dig it as well. But until we get those next podcasts, everybody out there, be sure and live long and prosper. Thanks. Bye-bye.